The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. No mai hoki mai ki other fold e mihine ko Duncan Green talking My guest this week is Michelle Ung who is man she has so many things uh started she's she's the spin-off bookkeeper or at least for for a, a little while longer but she's also one of our most like if you look at her CV one of our most accomplished actresses she's a director she's just got I mean you're you're here in this podcast the the sort of extent to which her there is just so much range in her career she's got double major in like <laughs> chemistry and and accounting uh, and and commerce she's just just got this like really really broad ranging and uh and honestly all at a very high level career she she's basically been she was effectively like a child star, uh, part of the the cast of McDonald's Young Entertainers, flowed that into roles on The Tribe and and even on Xena, um, and then like a, a quite a, a groundbreaking role on on Neighbours uh, as Laurie Lee, and and then ultimately like. You know, I played a role in, in on uh, Fear the Walking Dead when that was, you know, one of the biggest franchises in the world. So there's this huge scale and range to her as an actor that is, you know, only very few New Zealanders have, have ever touched. And then, you know, there's you should direct stage productions, music videos, and, and a trio productions, which really kind of uh, you know speak to different characters, uh, speak to different facets of, of her her character. And this is just a tremendously driven person. You know, she talks in the interview about being an active relaxer, and you really see that. If you leave her in an alone in a room for five minutes, there's a new project uh, getting getting uh, pushed to treatment stage. Uh, she's also an active member of uh, PASC, the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, which has done so much good to kind of create opportunity and and a, a voice for uh, the Pan-Asian community uh, in, in New Zealand media. And on top of all of that, there's the thing that we're really here to talk about, which is Here Now, a series which she's just dropping weekly on the spin-off right now, comes out of her own production company, and it explores the relationship of six... New Zealand woman with hair and it's honestly just 
it's one of those sort of hiding in plain sight ideas and it's so thoughtfully done and there's a real intimacy and care and so frequently just a moment that kind of blows you away in terms of it just sort of shaking up what your the sort of either the lack of thought or, or a stereotype associated with um, with a particular practice. It's really, really good. I strongly recommend you track it down on our platforms. Uh, this is Michelle Ung on The Fold. Uh, Tanakwe, Michelle, welcome to The Fold. Kia ora, Duncan. Thank you for having me. Uh, this, this is quite weird like I, because I'm here to talk with you about this this glorious and very broad career that you've had, but... You know, we, we're, we're colleagues. <laughs> You've been the spin-off bookkeeper for, for coming up a year now. And, and it's just, it almost speaks to when you look at your, your CV, because you've also got like a reusable bag company. And it's just, there's so much. Are you okay? Like, how do you, how, how do you carry all that? Um, good question. I think I'm like a chronic uh, overworker, like the idea of, of downtime. I'm an active relax, re- relaxer, I think. Um, that's not to say I've relaxed much in the last year, to be honest. But um, yeah, it's been a real it's been a real privilege to step into um, the spin-off as uh, as a finance person and use this other side of my brain that I went to university for. So at least my uni degree has been put to work in some way. Well, one of your degrees, right? One of my degrees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. Okay, so I want to start. We're going to talk about here now, which is your new project for us, which is so beautiful and. And I do want to dig into, but I also want to start at the start of your career, sitting opposite a, a, a one-time child star. <laughs> like you're, you're. I, I feel like McDonald's Young Entertainers, The Tribe, which was like a, an enormous genre and groundbreaking show, still is actually like weirdly these the people who it spoke to because this is like early internet days, right? And yeah. I think it just really struck a chord with like the then underground. Yeah, like the sort of innovators, and that they felt really seen and spoken to. And now these these the audience members are now like full grown adults, but they still reference it. To- totally, we did a story on it a few years ago, and it absolutely popped for for a show that felt, you know, like we d- filmed d- in Lower Hut in Wellington. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then Neighbours, you know, one of the first uh, a- uh, Asian characters of Asian descent on the show. Like, yeah, just 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 a lot. Um, what did you sort of what was your experience of the industry in in that era and you know of of being part of these quite enormous productions during the absolute peak of the cultural power of television yeah that's true i think it's kind of important to remember this is going back to like 90s <laughs> and the lay of the land was quite different and i i was a child so it's really like using my adult brain to reflect back is kind of different from like my experience that I lived when I was actually filming those projects. Because at the time I was just like a 13-year-old who really enjoyed um, dancing and was like an average singer. And <laughs> someone, sure that's not true. someone decided that I like fitted into the the super troupe, you know, in a way that would be appealing. But honestly back then like it wasn't it didn't feel in full credit to Dennis Spencer, who was the producer behind Young Entertainers, it didn't feel like it was a mandate that he set out to create the super troupe that reflected one of every ethnic, you know. I mean, not in terms of how robust that conversation is now. Like, at the time, we were just a group of kids who had the right range of skills, who were charismatic enough to hold a studio audience's attention, and 
yeah, I felt I felt really lucky. It never really occurred to me that I was that I was Asian and on television. And it's only now as an adult when people sometimes recognize me to say, hey, I, like you were the only person who kind of looked like me on New Zealand television at the time. Um, now it feels way more important than it did then. Back then it was like just purely entertainment. I've, I've had, I've been around Jane Yee who had a similar, you know, has ha- had similar people come up and say, uh, and say the same thing. And, and you, you know, it is interesting to kind of think about the politics of representation then and now. And then it was sort of non-existent, but it was, it was happening now. It's a much more keenly felt thing. And so you, you did that, you had that experience within New Zealand, and then you go to Australia, work on Neighbours, which, again, I mean, not too... It's, it's wild to think, for me to think uh, that, that Neighbours is now... Uh, gone as a you know because I grew up in the UK and it was oh, wow. na- neighbors was just the biggest thing in the world it was it was it was just a, it, I, like it was the biggest soap or it felt like the biggest soap certainly for my generation and um, you know and and it was filmed in a different country like I don't I think again I think it's important to not forget just how big of an institution that was at the time you were on it. Yeah, I mean, it was... When when I was cast, Neighbours was going through a little bit of a slump. I think the heyday of Neighbours was in the 80s. Um, a lot of the stars had moved on, and I think they were looking to sort of consciously rebrand a little bit. And Home and Away would have been, like, Home and Away was, yeah, over. they were doing... Yeah, they were sort of, like, eating weight at the audience. And the casting director came to New Zealand, which was kind of unusual, I think. I'm not really sure the thinking behind that. Um... The casting director came to New Zealand to do some open auditions and I was a real, I don't know, I just had some moxie in me, I guess, and I lived in Wellington at the time. I caught a train up to Auckland without telling my parents and auditioned and then caught a train back and kind of promptly forgot about it. And, um, yeah, I think I must have turned in an interesting enough audition that they decided to cast me, so I had to bracket to my parents, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm just going to move to Melbourne for a year for this show called Neighbours. Um but yeah, it was that experience as well. I think I was it was unique in the sense that for my character Laurie Lee, she had yeah she was called Laurie Lee. I was able to retain my New Zealand accent, but nothing in the storytelling ever had to reference my cultural heritage, which like seems revolutionary even now. Like I was just a character of um, one of the families that one of the family characters girlfriend and obviously I had the usual soap storylines but they were all yeah they were all sort of like culturally agnostic which to me was really liberating yeah yeah I can imagine that because you know we were talking before we came on about the extent to which you know things must be you know there is a within our sort of funding structures there is a there is a pan-asian round and, and and asian stories must fit in a particular box and that and how constraining that can feel well i have a love hate relationship with that i think i'm really grateful for the fact that they that there is a sort of pan-asian specific round because it does i guess it sort of like does encourage creatives from within our community to like to believe that there is a space for their the lenses of their stories in a time, you know, where maybe traditionally if you were up against, if there was only four projects that were to be commissioned that needed to have quote-unquote broad appeal, the likelihood of a pan-Asian lens story might might maybe not be so successful. Um, but the flip side of that is, you know, then you start, you know, like it's it's yeah, it's that sort of long, hairy question of like who are the audiences and, and will one story totally satisfy like an entire 
community, like a cultural identity? And the answer is obviously no. (laughs) But, yeah, we're sort of like in this tricky stage where everyone is trying to make sure that the stories have integrity and that the stories are being told by the right people. But then there's a sort of assessment level where someone else has to decide if that story is appropriate. Um, Yeah, it's... It's tricky. It's very tricky. What, what's interesting to me, look, you know, look, looking at your career again, is um, yeah, that you, you're you're basically at this stage where it looks like you know you you could kind of work in the industry. You know, you're, you're way ahead of of your peers um, by by any kind of metric as you sort of enter your late teens, early twenties. And then you sort of seem to drop it all and go off and do this double degree. Was that an intentional kind of rejection of the industry or, or what, what what drove that and then what pulled you back? I th- well, I've just always been – I've always been quite academic, to be honest. Like, I really enjoyed school. Um, I went to quite an academic school uh, in Wellington, Samuel Marsden Collegiate, and um, I really kind of thrived on on learning. And so I'd always done – sciences at school, but I was actually filming things like The Tribe and Young Entertainers while I was at school. So a lot of the time I was having to teach myself on set. Um, Seems chill. Yeah, well, it was terrible because my poor immigrant parents paid a hefty school fee of which I was never really in the classroom for. Yeah. Um, So I don't know. I mean, you could actually say that's maybe one part of my life trajectory that's maybe perhaps a little more traditional. I think I I did genuinely feel like I owed it to my parents um, and to myself to follow through on that academic baseline and and go to uni and and get some sort of degree. Um, My parents were pretty awesome in the sense that they were always of the mindset that the degree didn't necessarily have to be the career that I would end up having. It was just like an evolution of thinking. so I actually started off doing a industrial des- an industrial design degree <laughs> and mixed with chemistry because I was really interested in like um, the new materials that were being created and like the possible I don't know the possible applications for that and design and and that. But they're both lab based degrees, and because I was in a film on a film set so much, I actually had to miss so many labs that at the end it wasn't it wasn't tenable to continue. Um, yeah, continue that degree. So I had to switch for something that I could do via distance, which is how I came into doing an, a um, commercial uh, commerce and administration degree, which is where my accounting and commercial <laughs> law majors came in. I mean, we're very grateful <laughs> that, that you did. But no, so yeah, basically I just, uh, it was important. Like I think I'm unusual in the sense that some people are like, oh my gosh, I just always knew that I wanted to be an actor. And to be totally honest, I've always struggled about whether I'm a true creative or not. Okay. I think being left and right brain has sometimes made me doubt whether I have integrity in one or the other. Like it's always been a pull. <laughs> um, so, so doing the degree was like sort of a, a good way to, yeah, honour the academic sort of legwork and to feel like I had accomplished something in that space. Just something. <laughs> Um, so I want to, to spend a, quite a bit of time talking about uh, Kainga and and Riddle Me and and Here Now, but just before we do, you know you're you're also that certainly the first Emmy Emmy nominated person I've had on this podcast and and had a role in Fear the Walking Dead. I mean, Neighbours a huge show for the region. Fear the Walking Dead, one of the biggest shows in the world, like 
you know, counted on the finger of one hand kind of thing at the, the time you were on it. And I guess this is what, what I'm kind of trying to explore on some level is like this, you know, there, there are a number of tensions that, that your career sort of embodies, um, that there is just enormous scale and then complete intimacy um, and, and uh, you know, something where you have almost total control of a project at, at the other end. Was there a, a part of you, because when you're in that system, you know, you're, you're in LA and the, the whole of the, the star system and all the... It's that such goes a system. It. It's such a system. Well, t- tell me about the system and, and was there a temptation or did you try to kind of inhabit it? Like what, because it's, there's a reason why it is this bright shining light that attracts, you know, that it, that it lives at rent free in everyone's minds. Well, I mean, it's, yeah, I went to LA with, with, not much knowledge of how difficult it was going to be. And I think that was my saving grace because had I known what I was stepping into, I probably would never have done it. So it was a certain naivety that buoyed me. And it was, I, you know, we all know that the sort of engine of the global entertainment industry is in America. So without too much thought, actually, actually it's kind of funny, it's worth mentioning. I had done Neighbours in Australia. Um, I had been nominated for a Logie. Um, and then they had they were making the Harry Potter films at the time that I was coming off, and the, because the UK audience was so passionate about Neighbours, they had started this like website petition, like, oh my gosh, Michelle Ang should play Cho Chung, and I had caught wind of this, and there was enough movement that I think Warner Brothers at the time actually had to like send out a statement saying Michelle Ang is not playing Cho Chung, wow. and I thought, well, why not? Get um, that framed. Yeah, well, I was like, uh, maybe maybe Michelle Ang could be Cho Chung, so I flew to the <laughs> The UK, um, again, naively, and met with the casting director that was doing Harry Potter and met with other casting directors and thought, well, maybe that's the next logical step, like playing in the UK field for acting. Um, and I was very quickly, and, and and I'm grateful for this, was told that as an East Asian actor, there was absolutely like the slimmest chance possible that I'd be able to make a living because I just wouldn't be cast for roles because characters weren't being written that looked like me. But but straight up, so like I was like, okay, I could have wasted 10 years trying to crack it in the UK and wonder what was going on. But like some amazing casting director just had the the honesty and chutzpah to just say to me, this is not going to work for you. Why don't you try America? So that that really kind of got under my skin and that's why I went to L.A., and she was, <laughs> she was right in some sense. Like America was more ethnically open, but again, this is like in the two thousands. Like it was still really few and far between the kinds of characters that I would get a read for. And it's interesting what you mentioned in terms of your insight into my career roles because I think maybe this is where. <sighs> that idea that the work speaks for itself does come through because despite there not being that many opportunities for me, my mix of looking Asian but having grown up and spent, you know, like spent my whole life in New Zealand gave me a really different flavour. And what I noticed was for characters that were required to be you know, that were re- written in a stereotypical way of being Asian, I failed miserably. I just never got cast as those characters because energetically I was this weird hybrid. Like I, I, I was raised in a Western sensibility. And so the roles that I managed to get were often on jobs where the creators and writers were a little more visionary and a little bit more risk, like down to take risks. And 
And I think that kind of served me well in a way because if you look at, I'm quite proud of the calibre of my CV. Like by no mm. means was I not unemployed. Like I spent a lot of time <laughs> not acting. But but when you people ask me like, do I think I was successful? And I had to have I had to have day jobs. I, I wasn't able to live off of my acting all the time. But when I look at the calibre of the projects that I was able to be cast and I do feel like I was successful because those characters were really interesting complex characters and that's kind of because I fit into a into the I portrayed characters in a way that was nuanced and and not reductive and yeah <laughs> it's it's so interesting and kind of heartbreaking to think of that that casting agent um, talking to you in the UK and because it, it sort of refers back to what what you said about this like you know the the the, the pan Asian round where where it must be almost explicitly exploring Asianness in some respects versus one of the things that you actually loved about Laurie Lee was I'm just a person you know and you know you sort of think well yeah they might not be you know I, I always loved the idea of um, apparently Beverly Hills Cop was written for Sylvester Stallone and then Eddie Murphy like he couldn't do it for some reason Eddie Murphy comes in and makes it. Iconic, it is, yeah, and it's the same script, and it obviously would would have been delivered and extemporized um, in in some respects. But it kind of makes you think to to what extent, like you know, why would they require? You know, even the, there must be kind of knotty tensions around even having a, a, you know ethnicity baked into to certain characters. Where it, you know, the, the, you know, what what do you think about that that whole element? Well. I'm going to sound very unintelligent here and say, I'm a Libran, so I can argue on both sides, which is true. Um, I think, I mean, I absolutely, I would say that I'm much more of that, of that sort of um, viewpoint, but there, but, but there have been discussions and it's kind of true. Like you can't, how do I say this? It's like, I might not be aware of what my heritage, what part my heritage has played in my viewpoint, but there are schools of thought or creatives who feel like there is no way, it's inescapable the fact that I am an Asian person and I will have a different take. Like even, for example, just, you know, say say the character is a parent, sort of like deep parenting values, for example, like it's it's kind of a no-brainer that that even if I'm unaware of it, like even though I've grown up in New Zealand, there will be something that affects how I view parenting that will be ever so slightly at the essence, slightly different from someone who, who may have come from like a, you know, a Western lineage and how they view parenting. So there is an argument where there's no such thing as an, as a, uh, ethnically non-specific character. Absolutely. To, absolutely. Yeah. It's more that the, the idea that, um, there could just be a wall rather than a sort of, should we go in this direction and we will have to sort of examine some elements of how the the character is uh you know interacts with certain situations you know that that feels as as someone who's a million miles away from understanding how any of this works but is but quite enjoys thinking about that on this podcast it's like surely that's a a better solve than just well sorry we just you know that's just a thing where you just have going to have to leave this country rather than try and yeah. work on this thing that you're phenomenally talented at so so out the back of that you you've come to to do a, a sort of a trio of different um projects which which you know uh, could not be further from from fear the the walking dead um let's do you want to, should we talk talk about those like and they're all quite different um 
yeah, t- tell me about Kainga and your your role in that, or w- what it is and why um, why it appealed to you. So Kainga is the third feature film in a trilogy that the producers Brown Sugar Apple Grant started, and that started off with um, Waru and Vai, which was a portmanteau um, film made up of uh, little ten minute segments um, that were each directed by a different uh, woman director. And so in Waru, they had I think eight Māori. Māori directors, and in Vai it was um, the Pacifica um, population, and uh, Kainga is the platform for uh, the producers to create a pan-Asian um, film. And it was it was really interesting, because I had just come back from America and, yeah, wasn't really sure what the landscape of sort of New Zealand storytelling and film was like, and this opportunity presented itself, like the producers put out a call for submissions, and we had to write... Um, an, an essay basically about what home meant to us. So th- there was already this idea that the thematic for this film would be home and the meaning of home, the creation of home, like what, what the touchstones are of like having a home, not having a home, leaving home, as because obviously Pan-Asian experiences are obviously a lot of migration stories. Um, yeah, and so I was really thrilled to be selected and I, w- I was paired with the writer because I don't have a deep writing background um, which was also like an interesting challenge. I'd never worked on on a team in that sense where I'm directing someone else's work. But it was pretty amazing. We went to this um, writer's retreat, a development retreat, for five days, and we basically cracked the backbone of the full narrative. And then each of the writers with their directors and their teams went away to nut out what that vignette would compose of. And my writer was Filipino, so um, my vignette is, is features a Filipino protagonist. And I think that was really smart pairing on the choice of the producers because I'm Malaysian Chinese and the Southeast Asian kind of flavor and understanding of of the energetics. Like Filipina culture is really vivacious and I think Malaysian culture is sort of like, you know, like a tangent to that. So um, it was a really easy and rich partnership. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. So the next project I want to talk about, which has come out relatively recently, is Riddle Me This on, on Hey Hey. And... A wholly different thing. I, I assume informed by your by your status as a, as a mother. Um, so tell tell me about about that um, that project and and how that came about. Well, yeah. So I don't know. I'm a I am a mother and I'm a creative and I'm surrounded by lots of sort of creative parents who, you know, we we ha- we look at our worlds with a sort of certain aesthetic and. I thought it was really strange that in the children's space there wasn't anything that was visually sophisticated or not that I had come across. And I, I was like, oh, I just know that with all the mums and dads I know who have got such an amazing aesthetic, it would be, I'm sure they're hungry for sharing something with their children that is a little bit more aligned to their tastes. So, um, yeah, I came up with this idea. I think... I think problem solving and like curiosity and imagination is really integral for you know young developing minds and riddles is a perfect format to like pose pose to children and sort of like encourage them to ask the right questions and make the connections to find the solution in a fun in a fun way and my son was really into riddles at the time <laughs> um so I thought okay how's about we go and canvas New Zealand kids and, you know, we'll write these riddles and get them to ask questions on the evolution to finding the answer. And I also realised that actually the child media space is totally commandeered by overseas content. Like, 
Peppa Pig is like British. It's like all these weird toddlers going around going, I'm Peppa Pig. And, like, <laughs> and then there's, you know, and then there's obviously a lot of American content. And coming back from America with my child, I was like, well, I want him to like hear the children that he interacts with and, and hear himself reflected in the media that he's consuming. So it was really exciting to like go into schools in Tamaki Makoto and and capture what New Zealand kids sound like, which is actually quite broad, you know, because we have a lot of like immigrants, it's it's wonderful. And and the idea of removing I was really fascinated with the idea of removing the face value aspect of where these voices were coming from. And I guess just sort of riffing here, like maybe it's because of this, of what I've experienced in my career about like face value really having an impact on the perceived like personality or like, you know, opportunity. opportunity. Or, yeah. And so taking away the face value and just leaving these beautiful audio imprints of our children was really powerful. And I, yeah, I think if anyone watches it, you'll sort of, you'll see what I mean. Like the personalities of these individuals is so shiny and bright and way more wonderful than if we had, you know, had any sort of video to match. And then, and yeah, I partnered with this really exciting um, art director that I had found because I've worked in animation before. I was um, a manager of the design department in a New York animation firm as a day job one time. (laughs) I knew that there was amazing talent in New Zealand that just hadn't, that hadn't gotten a chance to flex. So working with um, Robert Wallace, who goes as Parallel T, who's known as Parallel T. Oh, I know, Rob. He's yeah, incredible. he's choice. And again, his his aesthetic is so is so sophisticated, but like my, my son loved his stuff. And I was like, why is Robert not working in a space that children can interact with? So we, together, we sort of went out and found really exciting animators and gave them, pr- like, it was actually... I think it was a really fun project for them because it was basically, yeah, four or five minutes of them of them creating whatever they wanted to illustrate like the critical the critical um story path that these children had had created in the in their goal of solving a riddle. And then lastly, let's let's talk about about here now, which is your new project for the spin-off. I remember when when Amber first took the treatment to me, it would have been coming up you know, maybe 18 months ago or something and just thinking about how, you know, and this puts, as if everything you have said hasn't put light to this, this idea that I don't know if I'm creative or not. It's like, are you kidding me? But the the conceit of it, you know, which is about women's relationship with, with hair and the and, and is ultimately told through sort of six, you know, vignettes to use your word. And, and it's so, it's one of those, you know, t- Obviously, as a dude, like like hiding in plain sight things about that that uh, is actually like of consuming kind of I don't know what women's relationship with, with hair doesn't feel like it gets talked about anywhere near enough. And when you watch the these episodes, the the thought, the level of kind of the cultural impact of it, what it signals to the world, there is so much in there. Where, yeah, what, what, why this? And 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 you know, you must be quite thrilled with how it's come out. Yeah, I mean, it was a real labour of love because um, you're right. It was probably maybe even two years ago that that this idea was sort of birthed, and we've had to ne- negotiate how to film this really personal, um, going into people's sort of like private lives during a COVID era, and and. I just want to say, like, it's not just the fact that you're a dude. Like, actually, 
it was really the fact that women don't even talk about it to other women. Like, I learned so much about it. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I had no idea. And actually, the first episode is, has come out. Um, and I think if you look at the comments, it's it's really shining a light for other women as well, which is important in the sense that it just speaks to this idea that this homogen, like dividing up audience or society into these groups is is, is a way to sort of hone an angle, but it's never going to be homogenous. Like even within, you know, women audiences, there's so much we need to learn about each other. Um, but yeah, I, I came up with this idea actually when I was in Los Angeles and noticed that there's obviously these hair salons and, and a really interesting relationship with women and their hair practitioners, perhaps a little bit akin to like men and their bartenders. <laughs> like it was just like this sort of sacred space where you were able to to be a bit vulnerable, but also like sort of yeah aug- augment yourself or like present yourself in a way that was a little bit more cont- like you could control the way you presented yourself. And um, in LA specifically, you know, there's Chinatown where there were these old elderly grandmothers who would go in to get their hair cut or and then you'd go to Beverly Hills and there's these rich you know rich housewives who are getting their hair colored and then you'd go to Compton and there's this like lovely energy of like what it feels like to be in an African-American hair salon down there so that was an idea that I had sat with for a while and I'd actually started researching while I was over there but hadn't found a way to make it and then when I came back to New Zealand there was a very a specific pan-Asian <laughs> RFP that New Zealand and there put out um, which was the first of its kind and it really it got me super excited because I was like this this is an angle and I know that within the pan-Asian community like there's so many different religions so many different experiences of like first second third generation migrants um and yeah from the outset I was really excited to present something that didn't have like an agenda across the series like I really wanted to find subjects that for example were clinging to their culture as a way to hold on to their identity versus maybe finding a subject that was completely the antithesis of that like someone who absolutely felt the the liberalness of being a New Zealand meant they could shirk everything and like build their identity from the ground up free from the cultural or religious ramifications and I don't know I don't know if I managed to achieve it in the way that I wanted to because it was really really difficult to research under the circumstances um I'd love to have another crack at it especially now that we've got you know like we've got this living series that potential subjects can see that their material is going to be treated hopefully with dignity um and I think that's something that's worth mentioning too it's it's interesting, like we are moving into a place where we are able to create content either about or for these audiences, but especially in documentary, these subjects have never been reached out to before to appear or to share their stories. And a lot of them were very nervous or cautious or um, cynical <laughs> ab- oh. about it. It was really hard to get access, even though I am, you know, Asian myself, I, so many women reached out and shared stories with me. But the moment I said, listen, would you be comfortable if I was to turn on a camera, would you share the same story with me? They absolutely were like, no, my husband wouldn't be okay with that. Or, oh no, I don't, I don't want everyone to know about this. It was, yeah, it was, it was interesting and slightly sort of shocking to me to realise that. Yeah, I mean, because there is a there is a very kind of cynical and kind of there's a way that you could make this, and probably it would would have been until quite recently if someone were to do it, it would that would have been the default. 
So I can you can understand why people have that reticence, but there's there's a sort of a a beautiful sense of intimacy and care that comes across. You know, I think about those moments where you know, like Yasmin is is shaving and and um, you know and having electrolysis and and talking about the the decision you know that she made that she took to, to, to wear the hijab and it's there's just like these are you know they're around you every day and yet the the level of thought and the kind of Socio-cultural considerations that that weigh and and kind of contain and liberate and do, and and have that that whole complexity. It's quite, yeah. It's just you know you you know how did you go about with those that you did manage to kind of convince to go along, kind of convincing them or or, or getting them to to open be as open to you as, as the show really required to kind of reach its what what it could become. This is my first foray into documentary, and I can like absolutely say I understand why people fall in love with it. It feels like such a privilege to 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 reach out to a stranger and then spend the time to like build trust and intimacy where you can ask those questions. And like I said, because this was COVID, a lot of this I had to I had to do via a phone conversation or via Zoom, which to me I I'm kind of like an introvert. Like I, I find it hard to to do things on mass of lots of people. So this one one on one was a good, you know, like it's a it's a good format for me to sort of be able to like connect with someone, but like I find it hard to connect over screens and and I do wonder if it would have had a different outcome if I had had that ability to go into communities to meet face to face. But I think I don't know, I think I learned that it's a two-way street. I found that the best ways to create space for the subject to share was to share myself. Yeah, to sort of expose expose vulnerabilities or sh- sort of share personal stories myself that then, you know, so it was like a, not a quid pro quo, that sounds, that doesn't sound nice, but like, you know, like it was, it wasn't, um, I wasn't taking advice, it wasn't a one-way street, it wasn't them exposing everything to me. But I do think also the fact that I was from, you know, within these communities, like, um, my cousin, because we're from Malaysia, my cousin is Muslim. I'm, I'm sensitive to some of the extra caretaking that needed to be involved. Like, for example, Yasmin, right from the outset, you know, I knew that there would be certain areas that we wouldn't be able to film. But <laughs> the kind of brilliant problem was that how do I insinuate these things you're talking about um, visually that we can't show? Um, you know, so we went the extra mile, for example, making sure we yeah, had as a female crew as much as possible, which was sometimes difficult. And like in the laser salon, I knew to bring in props like towels and cloaks so that we could, you know, cover her legs in a way that she felt was going to be appropriate. Um, and just sort of preempting these issues as opposed to, you know, getting to a shoot day and then putting the subject in a position where they would have to bring it up. Mm. I think that was really important. But something that I... The reason why I love Yasmin as a subject is because she single-handedly, like you mentioned, breaks apart what it means to be a Muslim woman. Like, she wanted to wear the hijab. I feel like, yeah, you know... That's an extraordinary revelation, isn't right? It in amazing? terms of the, the common way that we conceive of its Exactly. Function. I thought it was amazing. And the fact that it was her parents who were really trying to get her not to wear it. Yeah. And she, because of this idea that she, like, that it wasn't attractive, that, like, here like is beautiful or could be sexualized and it's sort of so the opposite from what our mainstream understanding of a young person in in that culture would have to deal with. I thought that was really that 
totally blew me away. It's just so nice when you kind of you come across situations where where, where you know the the complexity of life and how reductive uh, so many of of our sort of notions and and how othering it can be. Uh, it just sort of explodes right in front of you and it kind of forces you to reassess a whole bunch of the other ways you think about the world and the people in it. I mean, that's the hope, right? I mean, I think also another moment that really I I hope sort of shakes people up a bit is when she talks about how she chooses her hijabs and how the colour. She was like, no, the colour is really about, like, does it match my top? Like, what am I feeling like? I love how, you know, how realistic and modern and, like, yeah, it was such an insight into, into... that choice um, for for Muslim women, um, yeah, I thought she I thought she was phenomenal. And also, just to speak back to like the intimacy, you know, um, when she is shaving her upper lip, you hear her soundbite. She's like, "Wow, this is this is so empowering." And I think something that was a beautiful discovery was that the subjects went along with us. Like they became braver through the questions I was asking, and in some ways maybe hadn't been hadn't interrogated the reason why they do things themselves but having to talk to someone like myself about why or how it gave it gave them an ability to sort of grow and to understand their own views about things so it was really like a commune you know like it wasn't like I it's not like I went in and just photographed them I feel like they in the process also got to grow as well as myself as a filmmaker uh, so do you think cuz you know Again, in terms of all the, the many tensions that, that your career embodies in a way, like, you know, you, you talked about falling in love with, with do- documentary and you've made these much more small-scale projects where there's just a lot more ability to kind of control the shape of them. Does that feel like where, where you're headed now, where you'd like to sort of, you know, stay? Or, or you know, <laughs> where, where's, what's, where's the Michelle Ong project going? Um, well, I was going to say the tensions is the right word because as much as beautiful as the crafting of a documentary is, I'm well aware of how difficult it is to make a living, like talking about feature-length documentaries. The steadily shrinking pool of documentary <laughs> yeah, <laughs> commissioning, so, yeah. Well, yeah, and also, like, just the length of time necessary to get good stories. Like, long-form documentary mm. is... Wonderful, but I feel like time is very much a component of getting getting the goods. I think if I'm being totally honest, I'm not really ready to launch into like long form doco yet. I you actually missed one credit that I have out also at the same time, which is a web series I directed called Self Help. <laughs> <laughs> it's out on YouTube right now, and it was part of the Rangatahi funding round. Um, as a young director, which is a step I probably could have taken earlier in my career but didn't have the confidence to. Um, and I'm really proud of that too. <laughs> so I'm just going to drop that in there. Quite an implausible, uh, you know, <laughs> amount of, of uh, creative work that's, that's come out. Um, um, well, yeah, I think I just made the most of the year of lockdown and just went hard. But but I'm really interested in directing, I think. Um, my sensibilities and lend themselves, I think, currently more to narrative. So if there's opportunities there, whether it's projects that I've created myself or to step onto someone else's um, story, I kind of feel like that's that's probably the area that I would love to keep stepping towards. Right. Yeah. And and lastly, um, and we, we, you know, that's been kind of threaded through it, but um, I'd like to address it. Like the Pan-Asian Screen Collective, of which, of which you're a part... And which seems to have 
I don't think it can be a coincidence that there are, you know, the the visibility and the viability of uh, Pan-Asian screen careers seems to have flourished in, in parallel with its uh, formation and progress. So tell me about tell me about it and, and your role in it and what you know what what's working and not about the system for for the you know Pan Asian community. Oof, okay, um, well, <laughs> just a wee one. <laughs> yeah, I they started up a long time ago, and I was a late. I joined late because I didn't know what was going on while I was in America. And I think one of the ways that they have lobbied for for us is basically giving the creatives, the Pan-Asian creatives, the confidence to go for funding rounds. I think there was a really sort of deep-seated feeling that, you know, in a in a general funding round, these Pan-Asian creatives who sort of systemically don't have the right sort of credits are much more in terms of their career behind what the other pool of submissions might be. That was like one off-putting factor. Another one was perhaps the broad appeal necessity you know some of the some of the stories that our community is interested in telling if they were to I think there was just self-judgment about whether there'd be a place for them and what pan the pan Asian screen collective has done is really pushed all of us creatives to find a way to submit for every funding round and to to give us the confidence in a way that our stories will matter and will be seen and I think as a result I'm sure the funding bodies can see now like they used to say, well, there's not that many people who, there's not that many stories to tell. That was not true. It's just that we weren't putting in our stories. And now I think the, the true depth of like what our storytellers have to share has become apparent, has become apparent. And they also, I, th- I think they they work really hard to, just something that we touched upon earlier, this idea of like, what does it mean to have an Asian story? I think because PASC is internal, like, you know, that they understand the complexities of the burden of representation and I think they're really criti- cru- crucial in helping the powers that be understand that there needs to be nuance in, in, in the stories. There needs to be this alleviation of the idea that we get one Chinese story and that one Chinese story has to ensure that all Chinese in New Zealand feel represented. Like, that is just fundamentally impossible and also totally negates the point of storytelling, which is about having a specific point of view. And then also there's, like, upskilling as well. This I feel like there's a really healthy sense of community where each of where we're working on each other's projects and as a result, you know, um, people within the, the equity are having opportunities to, I don't know, work on a bigger set or upskill from a... PA to a camera assistant and sort of like building these alliances from from within working teams that that is yeah that it's going to sort of like keep growing the expertise within that community in a really meaningful way. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it really is, and and I think uh, that the the extent to which the the screen Aotearoa that the whole of the thing feels more open to different communities by no means work done and by no means uncomplicated but uh you know the that that work is it's it's powerful and important it's so powerful and also i like and this is going to sound really funny and stereotypical but hopefully also funny like shuchi kathari who's one of the founders you know we always joke like 
this the Asian work work ethic is just so intense. Like you know when we, when we have to do it, you know do a proposal, it's like all of us like go a hundred and fifty percent. The quality of the of the submissions is always like really really high. It's something to be proud of. Like we yeah just sort of collectively, I think everyone is really hungry, but also very diligent and studious and aware of like how important their participation in the creation of media is. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. And, and it's, you know, to, to influence government, which is ultimately the source of a lot of cultural funding in New Zealand, like it, it requires a sustained and almost exhausting amount of um, pressure and, and, you know, it's, I don't know if lobbying is the right word, but... but sort of, advocacy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, it's a credit to, to past work that, that it's um, been able to achieve what it has and, and you've obviously played a huge role in that. Um, I don't know if it's huge. I think I'm just, you know, it's some of many parts. It, it's also interesting because I've just come back from the Melbourne International Film Festival where the Film Commission brought the Kainga filmmakers to participate in the Directors Accelerator Lab and we got to talk to industry over there and, you know, there really is hardly... Uh, we have so much work to do, but just in comparison to like what our Australian counterparts are having to deal with, like we we're taking good steps. It was really it was really palpable, but ultimately the sobering takeaway from that whole week was that the Asia Pacific is such a small part of the global viewing population, and I think something that's interesting that I've been thinking about recently is. You know, we're lucky to have public funding and there's a sort of idea that we're over-reliant potentially on, on – I think there's a real need for public funding, but there's also like – we have – in terms of IP per capita, New Zealand is amazing. We have brilliant ideas, brilliant creators, and I think what could be really interesting is to like teach our creators how to be more resourceful and to not just rely on public funding – but a sobering fact of that was that basically when you play in the big global world, it's very American-centric. Like everyone on the panel, whether it was an indie filmmaker or a commercial filmmaker, it was basically like you can't unlock financing unless you have a star name like you mentioned. And star names and algorithms were only ever built for white American stars because if I write a Malaysian Chinese story, where am I going to find an actress who fulfills that metric that would unlock financing. Like, it's just not going to happen. So there's lots of, yeah, and that's taken up quite a bit of my mind recently about what does it mean if we want to play on a global stage, which I believe wholeheartedly that New Zealand creatives could, and how do we disrupt this idea that it needs to, yeah, to be commercially successful, we need these tried and true algorithms that have been presented to us from a legacy of American star factories. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, 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 the New Zealand story in terms of creativity is of doing stuff that would never be commissioned by the algo and it's succeeding precisely because of that. And so, yeah, hopefully that, that remains our, our sort of edge and, and any kind of infrastructure or funding that, that is set up kind of keeps that in mind, keep New Zealand weird and different yeah. in its own thing. Hey, um, thanks so much for coming on The Fold, Michelle. It's been, it's been really, really fascinating to, to speak with you. Thank you so much, Duncan. The Fold was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with Daylight. It was hosted by Duncan Grieve, produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee.
Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.